0: I'll be reading from the book of Galatians, chapter 3, verse 27 through chapter 4, verse 7. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, And if a son, then an heir through God. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated.
1: All right. We are in Galatians chapter 4 mostly today. Um, by the way, we if, uh, we're we struggling a little bit with latecomers being able to find a seat easily. If It would help if, if there are some empty spots in your row. If you could move in a little bit, that would be really helpful because I know there are some Empty places, um, and you ushers, uh, you can you can let them. There's there's plenty of room down here in the spray zone if you want to send them down here for that. So, um, we are continuing in Galatians this series, fighting for grace. Uh, there was a big problem in the churches in Galatia. Uh, this was very early in the Christian movement, and so th- these problems I think were to be expected because the church was still trying to work through some of its theological problems, uh, theological challenges, trying to determine exactly um, what they were going to do. And Paul was right at the center of that. Uh, He was invited to all the councils and and, and in the midst of all of those conversations. But I would suggest that this is to be expected anytime, not just at the beginning of the church 2,000 years ago, but it's to be expected anytime that we're going to have these challenges. Why would that be? Well, there are always going to be people who want to... Uh, corrupt or change or pervert or sabotage the gospel message in some way. There are always going to be people who want to deny the effect of the cross, the reality and the effect of the cross and the resurrection. There are always going to be people who want to take the gospel and then add something to it, so it's Jesus plus. Uh, I guess one way to just summarize anything that somebody might try to do with, to the gospel message would be this is really what our tendency is. W- we we, we want to take God-centered theology and turn it into me-centered theology replace God-centered theology with me centered theology and so Paul recognizes this and so he decides he needs to fight for grace and we should fight for grace also so with that let me pray again so that we might uh, be able to open our minds and our hearts to the word of God this morning and his teaching uh, gracious and holy God again we come to you and just ask that uh, that you would be clear to us through your word through the preaching today uh, that we would be able to understand exactly what it is you want us to know how to apply that to our lives and that we may know you better serve you better and glorify you God we ask this in Jesus name Amen and so we are now moving into Galatians chapter 4 we're going to include that last verse of Galatians 3 as well it's an important swing or hinge verse that leads us into verse uh, four, but essentially will be mostly in the first seven verses of chapter four. Chapter four is still part of that second major section of Galatians where uh, Paul is giving his theological vindication or argument for the position that he takes uh, in the book of Galatians that there is a false gospel that's being taught and that this false gospel is really no gospel at all. And so he wants to teach the the true and better uh, gospel. And that's what he's doing Uh, in a couple of weeks. We're going to get into start getting into chapter five and six, which will be the application of all of this doctrine that we've spent the last eight or nine weeks looking at Uh, today. What we're going to do, here's what I want to do. I want to do three things today. I want to read through the passage one more time, uh, making some comments about some concepts in there that might uh, help give us some clarity. Uh, the th- then the second thing we're going to do is we're going to talk about adoption, um, and, and I'm not talking about like something that um, t- Tyler and and and, uh, uh, and Haley have done or, or that Sean and Kate have done. I'm not talking necessarily about that. I'm talking about how God adopts us uh, to become sons and daughters of God. We need to unpack that because that's a big part of this passage. And then the bulk of our time is really going to be spent on what it means to be an heir of God an heir of god if you notice in the passage uh, the word heir sandwiches the rest of the passage you see the word in in verse 29 of chapter 3 verse 1 of chapter 4 and verse 7 of chapter 4 and everything in between those verses has to do with what it means to be an heir an heir is an inheritor a, a recipient a beneficiary and it's important for us to Unpack that concept and understand what it means because in Christ we are heirs we are recipients we are beneficiaries and we need to know what that means in spiritual terms so uh, again let's read through the passage again and make some comments starting at Galatians chapter 3 verse 29 Paul writes and if you are Christ's if you are in Christ you've become a, a Christian a follower of Christ then you are Abraham's offspring errors according to the promise Paul continues to talk about this whole uh, issue between the law and grace in terms of the promise that was made to Abraham in chapter 4 I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child is no different from a slave though he is the owner of everything but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, let me unpack a couple of important uh, ideas here. Uh, First of all, we are heirs, but Paul talks about how for a while as Christians, we were uh, child heirs. And especially in the case of the Galatians, in the historical context that Paul is talking about, he's talking about a child heir. Uh, A child heir is, is somebody who has the position of being an heir, but has not yet reached that point in life where you have the privilege and the benefits and the rights of being the heir. You're sort of an heir in limbo. You're, you're an heir in a liminal space, and it can be very, very frustrating to be an heir in position in name only, but haven't received anything yet. That was the problem with the prodigal son. He didn't like being an heir in position. He wanted the privilege and the stuff right now, and that's why he went to his father but in in paul's case what he's saying here is that the israelites for thousands of years were child heirs under the guardianship of this master which was the law and they lived under that and the privilege came when christ came in in the fullness of time when christ came that's when people became the true heirs the recipients and the beneficiaries of all the privileges and rights but until that time they had to live under this guardian they were slaves to this guardian if you remember last week tyler i thought there's a great picture of what the law was um when he talked about how you know when you're little and you're sleeping in a bed and you have those guardrails okay well the law was the guardrails for the israelites they were the chosen people but the the law was supposed to be Provisional but not permanent, as Tyler said last week. So the law really goes away; it's been fulfilled when Christ comes. A- and Paul even likens the law to the elementary principles of the world. He talks about uh, in in Colossians chapter two. He says, uh, "Don't succumb. Don't don't uh, be stupid enough to fall for the worldly philosophies and the empty deceits." of the world the elementary spirits of the world and in this case he's actually taking the law and making it as an elementary principle he says that in this passage here in galatians now what does he mean by that is paul throwing the law under the bus does he hate the law does he think the law is bad not necessarily the law was good the law was given by god the problem is is that the israelites had taken the law and turned it into something bad so when he uh, counts the law as an elementary principle. He's talking about the negative features of the law, and the Israelites, the nation of Israel, was responsible for that. They had taken the law and made it something that could that could save you. Well, that's not the purpose of the law. The law is not salvific, a- and in doing that, uh, it, it gave the law a negative feature. And then that negative feature, making it salvific, led to two other really negative features. Tyler alluded to this last week. These are important to understand. Whenever you try to live up to the law, only two things can happen, and one of them is not salvation. If you try to live up to the law, one thing that can happen is you can actually think that you're doing a good job living up to the law. Those would be legalists, Who have somehow convinced themselves that i am living up to the law and then you become proud it becomes an issue of pride and that's a problem you become religiously prideful and that's a sin the other problem with trying to live up to the law this is uh, usually a much bigger problem for most people because most people are realists and we realize we can't live up to the law and and the frustration that uh, sets in on us when we realize we can't live up to the law actually leads to despair and depression, and so now we, we turn our s- inward on ourselves And we think about ourselves And our little self-esteem is damaged and, and we withdraw And that becomes a problem as well Both of those problems Pride and despair Are solved, Paul says By the grace of Christ Living by faith in Christ So he's making this argument Against regressing into these elementary principles Meaning the law Falling for the Judaizers fodder and then he goes on in the next four verses to talk about adoption, and that's where we're going to move next But when the fullness of time had come God sent forth his son born of a woman born under the law The reason why Paul says this is he wants to make sure the readers of this text understand that Jesus identifies with us Because even though he's fully God, he's also fully human So he identifies with us He was born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons and because you are sons god has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying abba father so you are no longer a slave but a son and if a son then you are an heir through god so let's unpack that concept of adoption a little bit in verses four through seven paul says listen when jesus came uh, the adoption The process by which you become heirs of God has been completed. It's done. It's over with. So what does it mean that God has adopted those who are Christians, those who have come to Christ? Well, the first thing I'm going to do in talking about this is I'm going to tell you what it isn't. Um, It's it's true. Humans like to define things through the negative, and so I'm going to do that this morning. I'm going to start with that. Here's what it doesn't mean to be adopted as children of God. Uh, there are a lot of people in the world, I, you may be one of them, you might be thinking this right now. You hear this out in the public sphere all the time. Somebody who says, listen, I believe that all people are children of God. All people are loved by God. Aren't all people, by virtue of simply being born into humanity, aren't they children of God? And the answer to that is yes and no. There is a sense in which as the creator of all things, God is the father of all things. Yes. Yes. And as the father of all things, he loves his creation. He loves the world. He loves people. But, you knew that but was coming. There is a difference between that and those who have been specifically uh, adopted as sons and daughters, as the specific children of God who are his heirs and fellow heirs with Jesus Christ. It's been said that Henry Ford is the father of cars. He is the father of the Model T, Okay. And in that sense, you could say that Henry Ford had a love and an affinity for all cars. But you also should understand that there was a very special love or affinity or a relationship with the cars that he specifically adopted as his own, that he would bring home and drive himself, that he would put in his garage or his barn or whatever it is uh, that they had uh, early in the 20th century for cars. He had a higher and more specific relationship with those cars in the gospel of John chapter one this is what John writes in verses 12 and 13 and I think this cuts right to the chase these are verses we tend to blow right by in the gospel of John but they're important to listen to and listen to the specific language John uses he writes but to all who did receive him receive Jesus who believed in his name so he's specifying now a certain group of people He gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So in other words, to become a true child of God, an heir of God, you need to be born again. There's that phrase that for some people is like fingernails on a chalkboard, born again, okay? But it's true. Jesus even says this in John chapter 3 in his exchange with Nicodemus. You must be born again if you're going to see the kingdom of God. Uh, Later on, John, in his first letter uh, to one of the churches, he writes it this way in 1 John chapter 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. So again, John is making a very specific distinction between specific errors, Those who have been adopted as children daughters and sons of God and the rest of the world beloved we are God's children now John says so no not everyone uh, is a child of God in the sense that Paul is talking about here he's talking about specifically Christians who have been uh, adopted okay. Now, I have another illustration for this. This is a human illustration, and admittedly, if you carry this too far, it might break down, but I think it gives you an idea of what we're talking about. My two daughters, Shelby and Darby, were born of a volleyball coach mother, and so it was predestined before the foundations of the earth that they were going to be volleyball players. That's just the way it is. And both of them play volleyball, they play school volleyball, and they play club volleyball and i found it interesting i've been through this now for years and i know it happens every single year it's just the way it goes we'll start the season and i really won't know the other girls on their teams uh, very well unless they're returning girls i really don't know them and for a while they're just other girls on the team but i will admit to you that as the season progresses no matter what no matter what kind of contribution they make to the team no matter how well i know them eventually i in effect begin to adopt them as my own daughters jackie does the same thing too she can tell you her stories i'm telling you mine right now okay and i I just sort of start to adopt them I, i i begin to pray for these girls i begin to advocate for these girls that's a nice way of saying that i scream and yell at their games i begin to advocate for them I provide for them. I go and get them sandwiches and Gatorade. They come over to our house. We take care of them, and even in in some respect, uh, I also protect them. They they begin to get the rights and privileges that I also bestow on my own daughters. I, I I tell you this not because I'm proud of it, but just to give you an idea of how far this can go. Four years ago, I was at a club tournament. It was Shelby's team that was playing. And I literally, I mean, I almost threw down with another guy in the stands who had made a derogatory comment about one of the other girls on Shelby's team. He didn't even say it about Shelby. He said it about one of the other girls on Shelby's team. And the next thing you know, he and I are like an umpire and a baseball player right in each other's face, okay? Uh, That's not, I don't do that for any of the other girls in the gym. They're They're just other girls in the gym. But these girls that play for Darby and Shelby's team, they become, in a sense, my daughters that in a sense they get these rights and privileges provisions and protection uh, Paul says in Ephesians 1 that in love God predestined us for adoption in him we have redemption and have obtained an inheritance and, and please understand the context in which Paul talks about this is this Roman culture this Roman context where there were adoptions going on all the time in their culture kids would be adopted adults would be adopted males females it didn't matter and here's the thing about that Roman adoption whenever you adopted somebody into your family in that cultural context and Paul's writing in this context one of the things that had to happen was you first made sure that this person was pardoned of all of their past crimes and sins and if they weren't pardoned you would go and make sure it was right you would make payment for those uh, past crimes and sins and then you would be fully accepted into that family fully accepted into that family with all the rights and privileges. And then on top of that, this is really important, that adoption was irreversible. That adoption was permanent. Tim Keller says it this way, the privilege of adoption presupposes pardon, acceptance, and permanence. So that leads us from adoption into what it means to be an heir of God. There are as I've looked at it. There are six rights and privileges of being an heir of God that if you are a Christian today You should be living in these rights and privileges. You should be leaning into them And and I will tell you that as I studied this I found a real strong parallel Between the passage we're looking at today in Galatians and Romans chapter 8 So if you have your Bibles out Put your finger there in in Galatians chapter 4, and then go to your left a little bit and stick a finger in there at at Romans 8, because we're going to kind of go back and forth uh, between these two passages. So here's the first privilege or right we are participants in Abraham's promise. We are participants in Abraham's promise. We get this out of Galatians chapter 3, verse 29. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring errors according to the promise now remember the promises that god made to abraham in genesis 12 was that is he was going to have a great nation lots of people and that his seed was going to be the progeny for the messiah so i want you to think about this if those are some major promises that god made to abraham and if that's going to be true god needs to therefore protect and provide for abraham and his family this promise isn't going to be fulfilled if abraham and his family aren't protected and provided for and so the promise is that we're going to be protected in god's good purpose in god's good timing uh, and and through his understanding of what is good we're going to be protected and provided for as well Um, there's this uh, bible camp that my family and i have it's a long backstory on why we go up there because it's strange for when people hear that we go up there it's in northeast iowa we go there every summer uh, the end of J- uh, july and the beginning of august uh, i'm invited there to sort of pastor the family camp that they have during that time and and i teach at all the chapels and everything we've been going for 16 years and it's a great gig they pay for everything for us to go and, and i just teach um, which can be exhausting but then the rest of the time is my own and it's a camp and it's got zip lines and all this stuff is all the activities and one of their activities is canoeing now i'm not much of a canoeer, but y- you know it's northeast iowa so you gotta find something to do and so i would go canoeing every year and ten years ago um, we decided darby was six our youngest daughter was six at the time she said i want to go on the canoeing trip this time she'd never been you're supposed to be eight but uh, they made an exception for darby and said you can go shelby was ten at this time she wanted to do archery she didn't go so it's jackie in the front darby in the middle and me at the back now Today at that camp, you get to canoe on the Mississippi River, which is really cool. But back in the early days, 10 years ago, they didn't didn't, uh, canoe on the Mississippi River. They instead canoed on the Yellow River, which is a small tributary of the Mississippi. And depending on what the weather was like prior to the camp, uh, that kind of give you an indication of whether or not you're really going to do some serious canoeing on the Yellow River. There were years where uh, there was so little rain that at points on this 10 or 15 mile canoeing trip, you would actually have to get out of the canoe and carry it for a half a mile until you found more water where you could actually get into the canoe. 10 years ago, this was not the case. They had had tremendous rainstorms for several weeks prior and the Yellow River had become quite a river and and it becomes so deep and, and running so well that even the people in the camp didn't understand just how how difficult it might be especially for an idiot like me to try to negotiate this thing i remember when we got in the canoe the last thing tom said to us was you know you're going to run into a few rapids but you'll be able to neg- you'll be you'll be fine don't worry about it okay thanks famous last words we had a, we had on our, our our life vests like good little doobies and we're going along and I'm, I'm telling you about 2 miles into this thing we come up on this rapid and there's also a bend in the river and there's this huge pick and tree that's li- leaning over in it, and it was a disaster waiting for happen, waiting to happen. I'm in the back, supposed to be in charge. And I, at one point, finally, the canoe just flips right over. I mean, it just flips right over. And this is a heavy canoe and it just flipped right over. Jackie was literally thrown from the canoe when it happened, which is a good thing because she ended up saving us. The, the canoe flipped over on top of Darby, We could not see her, and we were worried about the 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 way the water was running; that she was going to get swept down the river very quickly, and that could be a problem. She she wasn't going to drown necessarily right away, but being swept down the river was a problem. And then my problem was is that I had on this life vest. I didn't get thrown, uh, but what happened was the side of the canoe ended up landing on my waist, so I was kind of bent in a V shape. And I was, my head was popping up on one side of the canoe, and the rest of my body was underneath the other side of the canoe. I was trapped. I literally could not move, and I was struggling to keep my, my head above water. Well, ja- Jackie didn't care about me. She saw that Darby was missing, okay? And literally, she, let me tell you, this canoe was heavy. It's in rushing, deep water. She swam over to the canoe and like, superhuman strength. She was able to push that canoe up, and there's Darby's little head sitting there, okay? And the minute she did that, Darby started to go away. The, 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 the rapid was taking her away, and Jackie just grabbed her. It was, I, I just look at that and go, that's one of those things where if, if you are living as an heir of somebody, Uh, the way God might look at it. It was just something that Jackie did. She never could have had that strength had it not been a crisis moment like that. Her instinct to protect her and provide for Darby was strong. In the process, she also, I think, saved my life, which is, you know, secondary to this whole story. But, um, you know, you think about, you think about Abraham and Isaac. Here comes this son of the promise now that Abraham has in Genesis. And then God in Genesis 22 says, take Isaac. Up to this mountain, and you're going to sacrifice him. And Abraham did that because he knew that God had promised to protect and provide for him. He went ahead and took Isaac up there. And at the last minute, if you know the story in in Genesis chapter 22, God provided an alternate sacrifice. God does this for us. I was watching, um, I love that Investigation Discovery show. And uh, a couple weeks ago, there was a show on there where a woman. Uh, uh, confessed to a murder she did not commit because she knew her uh, 19-year-old daughter had committed the murder and she didn't want her daughter to have to pay for it. And somebody on the show said, can you believe that a mother would actually confess to a murder she did not commit in order to protect her daughter? And the point of the people on the show that they wanted to make was, it happens more often than you think. The instinct to protect and provide for our children, even when they are wrong, is deeply profound. And if we feel that way, how about God? In Luke chapter 11, uh, Jesus says this, What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil. Isn't that interesting how Jesus threw that in? You're not even like God. You're evil. You're tainted. You're corrupt. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask them? He will provide for us and protect us. We're part of the promise. Secondly, we now live with no condemnation as heirs of God. Look at verses 4 and 5 of Galatians chapter 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of a woman born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons we've been redeemed we now have no condemnation if you turn over to Romans chapter 8 verses 1 2 Paul says it even more succinctly here verses 1 2 he says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. All of us, I'm sure, have had this experience with the work of Satan in our lives. Here's what Satan likes to do he likes to entice us to sin. He likes to come and whisper to us about how great the sin is going to be, how fun it's going to be, how beneficial it's going to be, how you're not going to get caught, how nothing bad's going to happen, and it's just going to be absolutely fantastic. And he he says, we're just going to revel in this together. It's party time. And then the minute you commit the sin, what does he do? Points his finger at you, points his finger at me, judges, condemns, and curses. Satan wants it both ways, and he's a master at it, And the problem is, is that very often we let him have it both ways. We give him that uh, ability to do that. But in Christ, we are no longer condemned. We have to just tell him we're in Christ. We're not condemned. Colossians chapter 1, Paul writes this. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you. Why are you qualified? Because you're so cool? Because I'm so cool? No, 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 no. Because God has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We now are no longer condemned in Christ. Third thing, we now live by the Spirit. We now live by This There's a right and privilege we have is to live by the Spirit, Galatians four six, and because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, "Abba, Father." And then Romans chapter eight verse fourteen, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Uh, Kathy Keller, who is the wife of Tim Keller. Um, She has a lot of people walk up to her. Their church is in Manhattan, and so she gets into a lot of conversations like this, and she has a lot of people walk up to her and say, you know, well, Christians are just fundamentalists, okay? And that word is said with disdain, and it's an insult, and and it's pejorative, okay? And Kathy says that she she has come up with a response that she uses almost every time. She says, well, that may be true, but you need to understand that all people are fundamentalists. Everyone is a fundamentalist. It just depends what your fundamental is everybody's a fundamentalist maybe your fundamental is recycling okay now i i am f- i'm pro recycling so you don't need to email me okay 99 percent of the time i recycle i'm going to tell you about the one percent of the time i didn't but i ran into somebody whose fundamental is recycling i had finished a, a morning run on a tuesday morning I, I drive down to the canal banks and run there i drove back to my house went into the the garage the green garbage can was out for pickup. The blue garbage can was in the backyard, which meant I have to unlock a door and walk around and it would be very inconvenient for me to go over there. And since I only live for myself, I had to do it this way. So I had an empty, I had an empty Gatorade bottle in my car. And, and here you go, listen, it was a 20 ounce Gatorade bottle, not a 32 ounce Gatorade bottle. So it was a small Gatorade bottle, but I took that Gatorade bottle and I walked out to the curb and threw it into the green garbage can. I didn't realize though, I looked around, I didn't see her. The, the, the recycling Gestapo lady in our, in our neighborhood was walking her dog, and she saw me. Now, here you go. She didn't just come by and say, hey, you know, w- would you please just, just go in your backyard and put it in the proper bin? No, she stood in the middle of Evans Drive and screamed at me in front of the whole neighborhood. Lights were coming on and stuff. That's maybe a little hyperbole, but I mean, she was screaming at me. I was, you know, who did I think I was? I was damaging the earth. I didn't care about the environment. What am I doing to my mother? And all all this stuff, I'm telling you. It was really bad. She's She's a recycling fundamentalist you could be a fundamentalist about acquisition and wealth by the way there's nothing wrong with recycling there's nothing wrong with wealth and acquisition but you can be a fundamentalist about it you could be a fundamentalist about nutrition and food advocacy again i kind of border on that a little bit myself okay Uh, it could be pleasure some of you pleasure is good but if that's the only thing you live for you become a fundamentalist about pleasure it could be politics Um, i teach communication as an adjunct instructor at at Foolish Seminary and, and a couple of years ago there was a student in the class that no matter what the lecture was, no matter what the discussion was, no matter what the conversation was, no matter what somebody's speech was about, the minute she opened her mouth, she directed all the conversation towards politics and what she thinks she thinks the, the, the country ought to be doing politically. She was a political fundamentalist, okay? Or or it could be that your fundamental is grace forgiveness and justice which is a result of living by the spirit of god what's your fundamental you're going to be a fundamentalist about something you might as well be a fundamentalist about living in the spirit of god scott mcknight says it this way legalists are led by the law hedonists are led by desires materialists are led by their possessions. But sons and daughters of God, Christians, are led by the Spirit. Matt Chandler, who's a pastor in Dallas, he says it this way. You and I need to be less cause-driven and more cross-driven, more led by the Holy Spirit of God. We need to be less cause-driven and more cross-driven, more Spirit-led. So that's the third thing, living in the Spirit of God. The fourth thing, we are fellow heirs with Jesus. Chapter 4, verse 7 so you are no longer a slave but a son and if a son then an heir through god and romans chapter 8 verses 16 and 17 the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of god and if children then heirs heirs of god and fellow heirs with christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him what does it mean to be a fellow heir with christ well There's a couple of things that we need to hit here. First of all, eternally speaking, it means that you and I are going to share in the new Jerusalem, in heaven, we're going to share with Jesus in his authority and his rule. And and I know that sounds crazy. Um, A couple of good books that could help you with this. N.T. writes, Surprised by Hope. Mostly it's a good book, uh, and I could recommend most of what's in there about this. And then um, Randy Alcorn's book, just simply titled Heaven, also helps with this. Uh, But according to scripture, and I know this sounds weird, but we're going to have co-authority and rule with Jesus in the New Jerusalem. And I know that sounds weird because, wait a minute, the New Jerusalem is going to be a place with no sin, no problems, no suffering, no tears. It's going to be a perfect place. Why would there be any need for rule or authority? I have no idea. Okay, but that's what scripture promises. That's what's going to happen. And I think the reason you and I have trouble understanding that is because the only thing we've ever known is a world where there are problems and sin and suffering and challenges and things that we need to work through. That's the only thing we've ever known. And so it's hard for us to understand. Well, just because we don't understand it doesn't mean that it isn't going to happen and that it won't be glorious and that it won't make perfect sense once we get there. This is just one of those things. Where we have to trust and have faith in the promise of god even though right now we can't see it and we don't understand it because as paul says to the corinthians we are looking at reality through this obscured lens this darkly colored lens so it's going to happen but what about now how are we fellow heirs with jesus now three things number one we are fellow heirs with him in building the kingdom of god here on earth matthew 28 the great commission as you are going about your daily life, as you're living your life, you are to make disciples and baptize them and, and teach them everything I've commanded you. That is, that is being somebody who is helping to build the kingdom here on earth. Uh, the, the, the Lord's Prayer even says that. Uh, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. One pastor says that the church's job is to help bring up there, up there down here. And even in John chapter 17 where, where, where Jesus prays for his disciples and all who would come after the disciples. In other words, he prayed for you and me in John chapter 17. And he says to God the Father, he says, listen, I want you to protect them and I'm praying for them because as you have sent me into the world, I am also sending them into the world. So we're fellow uh, builders of the kingdom. We're a part of that. Second of all, we share in his suffering. Okay? In John chapter 15, Jesus tells his disciples, listen, if they persecute me, they're going to persecute you. Now, was Jesus persecuted? It's not a trick question, and it's okay to participate. Was Jesus persecuted? Yeah, Yeah, that means that Christians are going to be persecuted in some way, shape, or form as well. And in, in Philippians 3, Paul says this. And by the way, persecution leads to suffering, obviously. In Philippians 3, Paul says this. Because of what Jesus did for me, I now have the privilege, the privilege of knowing Jesus, of living in his power and his resurrection, and of sharing in his sufferings and becoming like him in his death. He has the privilege of sharing in his sufferings and becoming like him in his death. I know we live in a world that's obsessed with eliminating all suffering. I know that. In fact, we've gotten to a point in our culture now where people actually believe it is a right. A, a, a civic right, a civil right that we shouldn't ever have to suffer. It's like it's, somebody has added it to the Constitution, you know? We have the right to life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, and no suffering whatsoever should ever befall us, okay? We've added that to the Constitution. Yet Jesus and Paul tell us that the reality is just the opposite. And I don't like this any better than you. But the reality is we are going to suffer. There is going to be suffering, and here you go, it's not even going to necessarily be all that bad. You read the letter that James wrote, and right at the very beginning, in the first couple of verses, he says, listen, consider it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you encounter trials of various kinds, tribulations, suffering of various kinds. Why? Why would we consider that to be joyful? Because we know that the testing of your faith will produce perseverance. We could go around this room right now with an open mic, starting here, go all the way around, and we could ask you this question, okay? When did you grow the most in your life and in your walk with Christ? And I'll guarantee you, not anybody's going to say, I grew the most when I had no problems, no challenges, no suffering, no trials, no tribulation. I grew the most when I had all the money and all the comfort I could ever want in my life. That's when I grew the most. Nobody grows under those uh, those, those situations. When you grow is when you are challenged, when you are suffering, when there are trials and tribulations. One pastor says it this way, why do people suffer? It's for our good and for God's glory. Now, here you go. Hear me on this. I'm not saying you should go and look for suffering. I'm not saying that you should leave here today, jump in your car and go, ah, let's go find a way to be persecuted and suffer. Pastor Frank thinks we should be suffering. Okay, that's not it. But quit being so surprised when it happens. I'm amazed at how many Christians are surprised when suffering. Hey, what, what is this? What's this? The suffering is for other people, not for me. Quit being so surprised when it happens. So the third thing that we are fellow heirs with Jesus is that we have the favor of the Father, the, that God is pleased with us. Luke chapter 3. Now, when all the people were baptized and when Jesus had also been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved son. With you, you, I am well pleased. One of the reasons we get baptized is because we're fellow heirs with Jesus, sharing in God's favor. In Christ, the Father is pleased with us. We should live in his favor. So as fellow heirs, we're going to help build the kingdom, we've got some suffering to endure, and we're going to lean into the favor of God right and privilege number five this might be my favorite we are going to get new bodies at the resurrection we are going to get new bodies at the resurrection romans chapter 8 verse 23 the creation is groaning and crying out because it's corrupted and paul writes and not only the creation but we ourselves who have the first fruit, fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. How many of you would like your bodies to be redeemed, okay? I'm ta- how ma- how ma- even if you're young, do you understand? Even if you're young, your, bod- your body is not working as perfectly as it's supposed to be, as perfectly it was, as it was going to in the Garden of Eden prior to chapter 3 of Genesis. Do you understand that? Do you understand that our bodies are deteriorating all the time, second by second, as the clock ticks away? Uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says it this way, okay? So we do not lo- lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Right now, as you're sitting there listening to me pontificate, your outer self is wasting away. Gravity's gonna win. I don't care what you do, I don't care how much you work out. Gravity's gonna win. We are all destined to bag, sag, and drag. That's just the way it is. But 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 wait until the new Jerusalem. Again, I cannot describe it in specific and definitive terms, but the Bible promises that we're going to get these new bodies and it's going to be so cool. It's going to be so awesome. It's going to be great. They're going to be totally functional in the new Jerusalem. Our bodies are going to do everything that they were supposed to do, and they're going to do it at maximum proficiency the way they were designed. Our bodies are never going to atrophy. There's going to be no disintegration. Do you understand that in the new Jerusalem, there is going to be no L.A. fitness. There is gonna be no more curls, no more squats, no more lunges, no more reps, no more cardio. Do you understand the new Jerusalem? There are gonna be no more diets. Could I please get an amen for that one? Yeah, okay. There is the New Jerusalem says no such thing as an empty calorie. And no calorie will ever go to your thigh or waist or buttocks. It won't ever go there. And the calories are magnificent in the New Jerusalem. Read the book of Revelation about some of the things that we're going to be able to eat there. We're going to get new bodies. I once told somebody, I said, my new body in the New Jerusalem is going to be like Brad Pitt's. And somebody said, you're aiming too low. (laughs) I said, Tom Cruise, still aiming too low. This is God we're talking about. So we're going to get new bodies. And number six, we get the right to say daddy in other words we have unfettered intimacy with god that is a right a privilege romans 8:15, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry abba father and then in galatians chapter 4 verse 6 and because you are sons god has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying abba father when shelby was 15 uh, she broke her middle finger on her right hand her hitting hand so she had to miss her whole club volleyball season she broke it in three places very bad break she had to have surgery and had to have pins and and screws and all that stuff it was an absolute mess and i remember her coming uh, out of out of um not out of surgery but when they brought her out for jackie and i to be able to take her home the only thing she wanted to be able to do was say daddy mommy that's all she wanted she's 15 years old she's in the process of becoming an adult yet still all she wanted was the right to be able to look at Jackie and I and say mom dad Uh, there's a guy named Russell Moore that writes about this a real experience that he had I want to read this to you it's a whole page I know it's tough to be read to you'll like this story though I'm telling you he writes the creepiest sound I have ever heard was nothing at all My wife, Maria, and I stood in the hallway of an orphanage somewhere in the former Soviet Union on the first uh, first of two trips required for our petition to adopt. The orphanage staff led us down the hallway to greet the two one-year-old boys that we hoped would become our sons. The horror wasn't the squalor and the stench, although we at times stifled the urge to vomit and weep. The horror was the quiet of it all. The place was more silent than a funeral home by night. I stopped and pulled on Maria's elbow. Why is it so quiet? This place is filled with babies. Both of us compared the stillness with the buzz and the punctuated squeals that came from our church nursery back home. Here, if we listened carefully enough, we could hear babies rocking themselves back and forth, the crib slats gently bumping against the walls. These children did not cry because infants eventually learn to stop crying if no one ever responds to their calls for food, for comfort, or for love. No one ever responded to these, these children, so they stopped. The silence continued as we entered the boy's room. Little Sergey, now Timothy, smiled at us, dancing up and down while holding the side of his crib. Little Maxim, now Benjamin, stood, stood straight at attention, but neither boy made a sound. We read them books filled with words they couldn't understand, but there were no cries, no squeals, no groans. Every day we left at the appointed time in the same way we had entered, in silence. On the last day of the trip, Maria and I arrived at the moment we had dreaded since the minute we received our adoption referral. We had to tell the boys goodbye, as by law, we were required to return to the United States and wait for the legal paperwork to be completed before returning to pick them them up for good. After hugging and kissing them, we walked out into the quiet hallway as Maria shook with tears. And that's when we heard the scream. Little Maxim fell back in his crib and let out a guttural yell. It seemed he knew maybe for the first time that he would be heard on some primal level. He knew that he had a father and a mother. Now, I will never forget how the hairs on my arm stood up as I heard the yell. I was struck maybe for the first time by the force of the Abba cry passages in the New Testament. And I was surprised by how little I had understood them until now. So we have the right to intimacy with God now what does all of this produce in us these six rights and privileges well there's a bunch of stuff and we could spend a lot of time on that but there's a few that i just want to hit in the last couple of minutes before we stop the first one is security should understand that this should produce in us a feeling of security in ephesians paul tells us that we are sealed by the holy spirit for the day of redemption Uh, here's how one person puts it he says we are as assured of heaven today as the saints who are already there. We also get a new identity. Our identity is no longer in our stuff or our status or in anything that the world has to offer, but rather it's in Christ. And again, I go back to my, I think it's my favorite Galatians verse. It's chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. We also get the ability to live with disappointment. Uh, Paul says in Philippians, uh, I love this passage. He says, I've learned how to be content. I know how to live in every situation in life, whether I'm well-fed or starving, whether I'm failing or successful, because I can do all things through Christ Jesus who gives me strength. A couple of weeks ago, I was with a small pastor's group that I get with uh, every month. These are friends of mine. And at one point in our conversation, one of, the, one of the guys looked over, he says, hey, Frank, so how's that new gig going for you in Arcadia? And, and I said something that I knew would annoy a couple of the guys in the room, but I said it anyway. I said, uh, here, here's how it's going. I am overwhelmed, but I'm not overwhelmed by it. And of course, some of the guys just started moaning and groaning. They said, oh, you, you're sounding like a European existential philosopher. Why don't you just move there and get it over with and try to write a book that nobody's gonna read or something, you know? But then I unpacked it for them. I said, here's what I mean by that. I'm really overwhelmed. There's a lot to do. And I know there's a lot to do. But I don't feel overwhelmed by it because I know God's got it under control. Things may be out of my control, but they're not out of his control. And I can rest in the assurance that God has this figured out. Now, 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 now listen very carefully because this applies to your life too. It doesn't mean I don't work. It doesn't mean I don't have goals. It doesn't mean that I shouldn't have some ambition. You need to have all of those things. I need to have all of those things. But here's what it does mean. It means that at the end of the day, no matter what has happened, after you've worked as hard as you possibly can to get everything done as well as you can do it, it means that you can look at it and say, I'm content with what's happened. I'm satisfied in Christ with what's happened. You can let it go and realize that God is in charge, you can live with challenges and disappointments. You can live with success and failure. Some people say it's harder to live with success than it is with failure, and I would say amen to that. It also should give us an understanding that we've been given the true and perfect father. And I know this is very painful for some people. I had a pretty good father, so this idea is is really kind of nebulous to me. But some of you, you didn't have a very good father, or maybe no father at all, and this is very difficult you to have to wrestle with but i guarantee you here's the thing about being adopted by god the father that, that that god is he is the father that your heart has been longing for looking for and seeking your whole life no matter what kind of father you've had even if you had a good father he's the true better and perfect father you've been seeking your whole life and finally We are indwelled with the ruthlessly unstoppable desire to see others share in this inheritance. We're filled with the ruthlessly unstoppable desire to see others share in this inheritance, for others to become sons and daughters of God. Redemption Church is gospel-centered, but we are outward-focused. That's why we go into our communities and minister to the people in and around our local communities. That's why we are a church of prayer. That's why we go into the neighborhood. That's why we're a church that ministers to prisoners and prisoners' families. That's why we do those things. That's why we proclaim the gospel of the grace of Christ to everybody, because we feel so strongly about wanting others to also become sons and daughters of God. Paul tells us, With absolute certainty, we've been adopted. We are heirs, and we should lean into living like that, the privileges and the rights of being heirs. Let me pray, and uh, Rob and Eric are going to come up and lead us through our time of response and communion and a few more songs after that as well. Holy God, we are thankful for your word and its truth, and, and we're thankful that it challenges us, but it also comforts us and that it also lets us know exactly who we are in Christ. And so, Father, I pray that you would give us the courage, the wisdom, the hope, and the strength to live as heirs with all the rights and privileges that you have bestowed on us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.